Hello everyone and welcome back to Voicecraft, or welcome for the first time. My name is Tim Adeline, it's been a little while. Here we are now in February 2022, it's all going great. This is a conversation with Matthew Pukowski, someone I've been wanting to connect with for a few years now, and a mind I've come to respect in the space of thinking about humanity's existential relation to an accelerating digital age, and you can find links to his work and Twitter in the show notes. Now, COVID was rapidly getting the better of me during this conversation, and in fact I was very close to rescheduling the recording, even the evening before. But after taking a cold shower, I felt I could just about manage the effort and figured at least that connecting with Matthew would be worthwhile, irrespective of whether a podcast was a possible outcome. As it turned out, I spent the next few hours and days immediately after this recording in bed recovering, a week and a bit later, and I'm grateful to be feeling much better. The net result is that I did edit this podcast much more than usual, cutting out large chunks of my speech in the second half. There were just some places where I felt what I was saying simply wouldn't be coherent of a podcast, but such was the quality of Matthew's responses. Now, with a bit of charity on your part, I think this holds together well enough to share a large amount of insight into prescient and critical questions about our collective relation to an accelerating digital world. And I hope you enjoy it. What follows is a conversation about the nature of value, wealth and exchange in consideration of the paradigm-shifting digital communications platforms we're almost all inexorably tied to. It's a conversation about collective intelligence, existential risk and the shadow of the collective unconscious in the context of social media. I tried to anchor it in an embodied sense of what matters and it begins with my asking Matthew how he thinks about the nature of thinking itself and also about what matters in life. Thank you for being here, and thank you to the patrons at patreon.com slash voicecraft for making this work possible. Please consider joining them by pledging a monthly donation. Here we go. I'm interested in how you think and how you see in a, in a general sense, but also in a personal sense. So how you think, how you feel, how you see, what matters to you. And I'd also like to share what matters to me in dialogic process. And if we can manage to resonate from a basis of what really matters to us, then I think that's a really profound way to contemplate and maybe generate in relation to some of the notions we discussed, I mean, mentioned to you the nature of value, exchange. I chucked in many other words in there like culture and wisdom and all of that. But we can wind it back a little bit. When you sit down to reflect on who you are and how your mind works, maybe we could begin there. How do you think about the world? I try to do so carefully. I try to think through... I mean, this process of thought is, it's, it's difficult to introspect any process that one is inside of. And so the question itself becomes a very difficult exercise in trying to understand one's own, one's own limitations and also um, what we mean when we talk about this word think. Um, this idea of, uh, of an individual interacting with the world around them, taking information, uh, doing something, transforming that information somehow internally 
uh, and then mapping that transformation onto some set of um, actions in the world, maybe goal-oriented in some way, maybe intuitive, uh, maybe just uh, experiential, maybe just uh, exploratory or playful. Um, the relation of thinking to all those different types of, of actions, you know, different people, depending on who you ask, will use the word differently to describe different parts of, uh, of that internal uh, information processing. Um, from my perspective, uh, where I'm at at the moment, I would say that uh, thinking to me uh, means that process that's going on inside the part of self that is capable of uh, of consciously interacting with both information coming from outside oneself and also information um, emerging bottom up from inside one's own self, which is sort of the same as saying that's coming forward through time into the present from one's past and that which is meeting it from the outside. And then what's happening at that sort of intersection, that confluence point of, of sort of that wave front of your experience through time that is, I think, what we point to when we talk about thought. Um, there's some sort of internal structured turbulence of sorts um, that is contained within the mind that has been structured and selected for and pruned by millions of years of evolution, um, encoding certain kinds of semi-stable pathways of, of relating to experience and relating to signals, information, uh, light cues, sound cues, touch cues, all of these various modalities of sense, uh, sensory apparatus helping us to point to some sort of relationship that we're in to the external reality, to each other, to ourselves, and the process of the relations of all of those unfolding across time in ways that are either sustainable or terminating, right? Uh, all the ways in which those types of processes can relate to one another and you know, to our ancestry that did not uh, maintain a connection to the capacity to sustain through time is, is no longer with us, uh, which is always fascinating to meditate on as well. So, you know, this question of how one thinks or how I think is all tangled up in all of these different um, lines of thought and inquiry, any of which we could pull on for, you know, hours as a thread of conversation, I would, I would say. Um, but that's just kind of like a high level summary of what, what comes to mind when you mention this question of, of thought or, or how I think, because, you know, to be completely honest, the question that has been at the root of so much of my exploration is, is what the hell is that thing happening inside my mind? And why can't I actually get at it fully? Why can't I know where the words I'm saying right now actually come from? You know, what is the wellspring of this? How can this be simultaneously me, but a part of me that I can't see clearly um that is always a mystery even to myself uh yet which should be the most intimate part of self that one is capable of knowing so in any case that's a lot so i'll, I'll let you go from there wherever you think is interesting yeah awesome no that's great it's uh it's a tough question straight off the bat i think you did a great job so one of the things really coming through there is is encountering our own limitations in knowing ourselves and yet being so close to that process so intimately bound up with that process and it sounds like it matters a lot to you matters a lot to me too if you if you consider maybe from a different level 
What matters to you in life? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, that also evolves across time and, and varies from day to day, moment to moment, and uh, you know, sort of the level of resolution at which I'm uh, interacting with the world, right? Like if I'm embodied and I'm physically engaged in some process, uh, you know, like let's say attending to a plant in the garden, um, what matters to me is entirely in relation to understanding how to bring about the most full vision of the growth and health of, of this relationship between myself and this emerging organism and its context. Um, in relation to you know my spouse, you know what matters to me is the ability to have a depth of connection um, that allows for us to see each other as fully as possible in the present, but also to balance all of these different unique perspectives and, and values that we might have moving across and into various horizons of, of the future, right? Different time scales into the future. Um, what matters to me is, is the fact that I don't want humanity uh, as such to end as an exploratory evolutionary experiment. And I fear sometimes that we might be taking steps down that path. Uh, what matters to me is figuring out how to have high quality interactions and conversations and share information and create things of use and beauty with as many people as I can before I no longer have life. Um, so those are you know, a subset of things that matter to me and you know, that, that I care about. And I think you know, that's another interesting question, that relationship between what matters to you and, and what you care about, what you direct your attention to and, and how to figure out how to direct your attention and care toward uh, aspects of the world, given that, that that attention and care is such a limited and precious resource. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a, I think, a sampling of what, I, what matters to me. Yeah. That's beautiful. Beautifully said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose this is a podcast, so... For me to just say <laughs> I share a lot of that would be a bit too trivial, but uh, but I really do. Yeah, growth, health, connection, um, seeing each other, balancing values. There's a certain um, care for, uh, on the one hand, the world to be as it is in its relationship to its own realization and at the same time a sense of inherent involvement in that and so a necessary participation and therefore in some sense an ethical question like well how am i to relate to this is there a way i can modulate myself this um, desire to know more fully how we're touching others to know more intimately what we are moving and the relationship of our choice to what changes. And that's a really big thing. That's a really, really big thing. And, uh, and I like as well that you mention 
an interest in understanding how to interact well and to share meaningful experiences and content into the world. From my perspective, I seem to be involved in this process of attending and reattending to the dynamic of interaction itself that can manifest in dialogue and can manifest in all forms of interaction. Um, but certainly I pay a lot of attention to dialogue with a keen interest in how our participation in it and what we can see together in that process, how we modulate it, in what way those patterns of interaction might offer a kind of insight or at least um, to see continuities between how we participate with each other and perhaps broader systemic questions and um, structures in the world. So when I engage with uh, your writing and I'll be honest with you, a fair few number of your tweets as well, you might have seen me retweet them from time to time. I, um, I've always been let's say not a fan of Twitter, but over in the last sort of, maybe in the last year, I've uh, probably like halfway through the pandemic up to this point, I started paying a lot more attention. Um, not really posting very much. It doesn't feel a like a fluid thing for me to do. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's its own medium of expression in relationship to a kind of broadcast modality and the way you tweet anyway, from what I know, you, you condense a lot of meaning and you, um, you write with uh, a clarity that I appreciate. It comes out in a, with a particular analytic flavor, but part, that's partly why I think it's interesting to begin the conversation like we have and really presence what matters to us and what we care about. Because um, if we survey the world in general and the world of communication there's obviously so much there but one of the ways that fractionation in terms of our capacity to communicate well you know and fully with each other one of the ways that can break down is too much compression of patterns that are going to blow me up into one space is it the case that in in culture in our lives in general we have those contexts available that allow us to move sort of a little bit more um, gently, slowly, with a bit more protection, with a bit more wisdom in the context to actually understand and gain a sense of um, co like continuity with the transformations in our identity that can occur as a result of um, comprehending different levels of analysis with implications that can oftentimes be uh, deeply destabilizing of the psyche itself, of identity itself. But there's something else which I've noticed in your interest as well, which is something we definitely share in common. And that's an interest in um, Jungian thinking and archetypal thinking. And I've been impressed by the way you've integrated some of those notions with, let's say, a complexity, evolutionary kind of lens. So I'm just flagging that as something else, which uh, we might enjoy talking about as well. Maybe I'll stop there in case there's anything you'd like to comment on. And then I can, uh, I can also come back to maybe directing this with a bit more of an explicit question, if you like. Yeah, there's, I mean, there are uh, a number of threads there you started exploring. 
Um, start maybe like weaving some of them together. Uh, you know, perhaps we could hold it in our minds a few images, one of them being this image of, of Twitter has this collective space of, of highly compressed, high velocity, uh, yet largely chaotic and fragmented communication. That could be one image that we hold in our minds. And another image that we hold in our minds uh, might be this Jungian notion of the, you know, the unconscious and the dynamics of the unconscious as a space in which archetypal imagery or archetypal representations or, or projections play out their narratives and reflect back to us meaning about the world. Be another way that we, another image that we hold up for this conversation, uh, for these conversational purposes. And then uh, you know, a third image that we hold up might be this idea that, you know, when we're initially talking about how uh, people are expressing themselves or connecting with information or attempting to decide how to um, act in the world such that they are able to connect with a certain um, sense of purpose or achieve a certain goal that allows them to feel as if they are contributing in a way that integrates naturally into a positive vision of the future of the world. Um, I think holding an image of, of, of like this desire to actually plug into, like figure out a way of plugging into something much larger than oneself in a way that feels meaningful and not just trivial or chaotic. So like we, if we have those sort of ideas, those three images floating around in our mind, we can kind of begin to see that, you know, they interrelate with one or pretty, pretty deeply. Like this idea of Twitter, we can actually begin to see Twitter as the space of the collective unconscious, right? We, what we've done on Twitter is we've dramatically reduced the distance between a perception and a reactive expression. Right. Usually those types of reactions that are triggered by seeing something on Twitter, if we were just walking through our day and interacting with individuals, having conversations, those would be thoughts that happen. They emerge briefly if we were paying attention internally to our mind, to our mind's eye, to our internal voice. Those thoughts would come up, perhaps. Right. They, then they might not be as well articulated or as fully formalized, but the intuition behind them, the impulse behind them would arise and then. Typically, many other natural mechanisms of the conscious mind, of the social reality around us, they would sort of push back and, and parameterize and, and tamp down that tendency to express that initial impulse. And so, so much of what I think we're seeing expressed on Twitter really is just the manifestation uh, of this uh, almost major cognitive reactivity that is um, is very raw and unmediated by all of these other external and evolutionary parameters that in our naturally occurring social interactions are active, but all of those breaks are, are released on Twitter. So we really are seeing a sort of unvarnished window into the collective unconscious of, of the world. Uh, and then the interesting thing that you, you kind of start to think about as well is that you know, that's going to generate a particular kind of um, world image, let's say, right? And, and that world image that emerges out of that collective unconscious, it can go in many different directions depending on the kind of information that is dominant in that network. In the same way that if in our own unconscious, right? So much of Jungian psychoanalytic work is about understanding that these internal dynamics that are happening in the unconscious via 
you know, analysis of imagery or, or, or sort of archetype work, shadow work, understanding how to integrate the fact that you know, we aren't necessarily all light and magic and, and, and the good. We have these impulses that we tend to understand through the lens of you know, immoral language as, as evil um, or as our dark tendencies or as our you know, violent impulses um, are these, these modes of reaction that if we just acted them out, most of us with, with relatively decent um, active consciences wouldn't be so proud of, of those actions, right? But then actually looking squarely in the face of that you know, is something that's very much an integral aspect of, of Jungian psychotherapy. And so, you know, what would it be like, like what would it be like to, to think about or, or to, to, to perform some sort of a Jungian shadow work on the emergent collective consciousness of, of Twitter as a whole, right? And to some extent, I think that's kind of the, the analytic lens that I am to some extent providing or attempting to provide through these, these kind of highly compressed observations that, that, you know, it's not all pointed at the shadow of the self and of the collective and of Twitter, but I think a lot of it is because I don't think we quite realize the amount of damage that we could do and are doing by leaving unaddressed the, so to speak, uh, emergent shadow of this novel collective unconsciousness that we've sort of unthinkingly wrought upon the world in the shape of Twitter. So tell me where that lands for you, but that's kind of how I weave together the, the threads that you're bringing up there. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Well, I mean, what comes to mind immediately is actually just to ask another question. Um, how, how do you rank this phenomenon in consideration of existential risk and maybe other interests you have in that area. The phenomenon of Twitter? Yeah, and well, that, but uh, I suppose like particularly salient elements of that which you were mentioning are this, uh, this, uh, uh, it's as if there's a removal of we can think about it both as a removal and an addition so a removal to the a removal of a certain part of the inner psychic process of modulation you mentioned conscience as a kind of like a uh, shortening the gap um, between perceptions and expressions um, which has you know, putting that out there into the public square and uh, the various energies associated, what that might catalyze, how that might affect the coalition of energy into various um, mob identities or, um, let's say, projections of the collective psyche might be one way to look at it. I mean, of course, this has been happening across different mediums and in different ways throughout history anyway, but it's certainly like a novel technological um, occurrence. And so I'm curious for your thoughts about mm -hmm. that in relation to existential risk, but also mm -hmm. I know you think about that um, more broadly as well. Um, so I'm curious about how relevant, uh, let's say, the the current um, phenomenon of social media, perhaps exemplified by Twitter, is to that conversation. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's directly relevant. I think that it is, you know, 
the, the capacity to understand large scale speed of light communication as a species and, and direct that toward constructive, peaceful and uh, adaptive modes of, of dialogue, discourse, information sharing, uh, information discovery, information revelation, um, digestion. Um, Getting that right is, is absolutely essential to uh, navigating our way through the, the sort of informational great filters that lie ahead of us in the 21st century. Um, you know, there are many different people choose to focus on, on, on different, let's say, <laughs> threat vectors, right? And there, there are many. And you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not here to try to place one above any others, but in the informational domain, I mean, it is fascinating to think about this notion that information is, is extremely difficult to find, um, right? Information, if it's useful, will flow through any available medium, um, typically to, to anyone who might find use of that information. And, and pairing that truth with the idea that as a species, we have begun to unearth some extremely potent information right, information associated with unlocking the genetic code, information on, you know, associated with unlocking certain aspects of physics that can be used for, for great good or great evil. Um, also unlocking the, the human mind, unlocking truths about deep human psychology, uh, you know, neurobiology, understanding how human interaction with technology can take advantage of certain aspects of our evolved, um, brain such that people can be controlled, manipulated, um, directed in, in towards certain aims that might not be in their own interest, but are in the interests of others, right? This, these questions are deeply uh, tied up with the patterns we see emerging unconsciously um, in, the, in the realm of social media. Uh, and I, I think to some extent as well, there's this interesting, there's this interesting it's like we as individuals, this, this mode of consciousness, this mode of conscious thought, this, you know, as people like Daniel Kahneman coined, like the system one type of thought, right? That is very much a narrow band, slow, um, non-reactive form of analytic thought, you know, that emerged and evolved for a purpose. And it's very unlikely, I, I, I find it quite unlikely um, to believe that we would have ever been able to scale beyond very low Dunbar numbers of social complexity, and, you know, groups of 5, 10, 25, 50, if we were not able to um, put on hold for periods of time our purely unconscious intuitive reactions, right? Because those intuitive uh, reactions, those, those immediate reactions, they, you know, they can discover modes of um, success when they're figuring out how to, you know, when people are interacting in different ways and just bumping up against one another. And if no one can be conscious and, and slow down, yes, maybe 80% of the time, 90% of the time, even 95% of the time, maybe that works. But all it takes is one sort of uh, like feudal loop or, or one highly destructive cycle to be discovered. And if you can't step out of it consciously, you can't pause and slow down, that cycle will amplify and self-amplify and self-amplify such that it takes over the entire system and then 
you know, that feedback destroys the entire system. I mean, very much, you know, people are very familiar with this happening at concerts, for example, with, with feedback in, you know, between a microphone and its speaker. Um, and, and, you know, that extremely fast growth of feedback-induced um, intensity, it's almost indistinguishable in your consciousness from like an explosion, right? Very disruptive. And it can physically be disruptive to your eardrums if you're not careful. Um, in the same way, I think that, you know, without the ability to consciously step out of these reactive processes, you know, we never would have been able to sustain the social complexity that we uh, see around us today. And, and then there's this question of, well, how do you apply that same lesson to this idea of, of emergent collective intelligences where, you know, that emergent collective intelligence uh, its survival may very well depend on its ability to, to stop and, and actually of its own accord, pause itself and think more deeply and step away from the reactivity. Uh, and that's not the same thing as centralized authorities pushing down a sort of stop sign on the entire collective. That's a very different uh, mode of, of managing large numbers of, um, of agents, right? Like, what we need to discover is a way for uh, the signals, you know, more like protocols that allow for signals along various dimensions to propagate such that somehow we do understand from the bottom up when we are, um, when our own habits are, are beginning to threaten our, our survivability um, and, and then have signals that are able to be meaningful to different cohorts of society um, uniquely, <laughs> such that they don't feel that they're being forced or told to change their behavior, but they themselves recognize based on their own morals, values, and perceptions that, oh, wait, like I'm, I'm steering down a path for myself, my family, my community, my state, my nation, you know, our species that is likely going to uh, lead toward everything falling apart, right? Um, how do we get there? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty certain that uh, centrally managed networks with opaque algorithms whose primary incentive structure relies upon informational extraction and attention that doesn't care about balancing any other dimensions of value uh, of the user base, I'm pretty sure that's not it, right? So, you know, I, I have a lot of ideas about what it might look like, but I can, you know, I can certainly say that what we see right now is is far from the model of uh, emergent collective intelligence that is going to get us there. <laughs> right, right, totally. Yeah. yeah, well put, well put. Yeah, really well articulated. So there's a couple images that came to mind as you were speaking and, uh, I'm surely going to, um, this compression is going to be a bit lossy, but let's just, I, I, I think at the same time it, yeah. They um, all are. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. They will, it paints the picture in an interesting way. So, so I was recently part of a, uh, book group discussion on, um, operating manual for spaceship earth by Buckminster Fuller, which I'm yeah, sure you've probably read that. And so some of his coinages are just fresh in my mind. But it'll speak about the the capacity of mind to come upon deep principles. 
and in that sense uh, find greater leverage with respect to um, desired actions in the world. And in the context you're kind of painting, it's as if we've not only have we sort of exponentialized our capacity for leverage with what we've come to understand, but we've also sort of democratized access to that in a novel forum for interaction. And it's almost as if given the nature of, let's say, collective psychology, just for one thing, and, you know, partly I want to put to the side, although it's very important to include at some level the centralization you speak to, there's so much manipulation in the channels as well. It's, um, it's of course, not, as I know you're not claiming, a totally bottom-up process in that regard. There's certainly attempts to engineer outcomes, which itself participates in a kind of interesting feedback relationships with everything else. But it's as if the image that comes to mind is it's a, it's a ridiculous one, but it's as if like there's a crowd of people sort of sprinting and flailing and every limb and edge on the body is attached to something they're unaware of and every movement is like tweaking something that's just causing so many effects. And at this point, you know, the poetry escapes me to describe the image further. But that, but that it really does seem to be the case that more and more how we participate matters in a very deep sense. And, you know, remarkably, that's also held in the context where our participation feels sometimes so meaningless because <laughs> we can feel so atomized. And, uh, and in some sense, when someone commits their agency to being part of a particular mob with less consciousness, perhaps associated to their expressions and their, uh, their desire to propagate certain values in the world, a certain disconnect from even um, knowing maybe what those values are and how they might interact with other things they might care about, but are currently not in that much integration with, well, that just sort of complicates things further. So, you know, I suppose putting it into some other words, that's part of what I'm hearing. And so as you've moved to the end of your expression, you're sort of opening the space, I think, for a discussion which I can bridge into the consideration of the nature of value and exchange. Might have to make one or two steps to get there and we can take <laughs> our time. But you're opening into a contemplation of, well, the way we're currently participating in, let's just say, intelligence some sense-making system is uh, not particularly intelligent and the way we're treating each other is often uh, disabling our capacity to actually share perceptions together and make better sense of things so there's quite a bit of weaving to do here and and, and you know we can take our time but with respect to if i think of value and exchange i i in the context of collective intelligence i'm at least going to also consider education for instance, like what does it mean to be to to grow into the world and to be drawn forth into the world in a way that enables some adaptive touch and um, progressive capacity to come to self-knowledge of how one is touching self and, and the world as part of a, a dynamic process, as part of something so deeply involved. So that's, you know, that's part of it. But we're also coming at this as, as well from a level of, I suppose, communications technology. And so 
maybe you can pick this up wherever you like in terms of how you approach the topic of the the potential for a more adaptive collective intelligence yeah so i think i would like to begin with the image that you brought to mind and you traced out for us of a number of people connected to each other in many ways that they don't understand and that creating this kind of chaotic mesh of human action right uh, seems like is that is that a fair characterization of the mental image that yeah. you're you're communicating as well totally. um and i think the interesting interesting one of the interesting aspects about that image are you familiar with the term epistasis i'm not so epistasis is a term in genetics that refers to the interaction because genes what are genes genes are information that are controlling to some extent the expression of um, proteins, right? Um, or basically, therefore, changing the expression of various other processes. And so epistasis is, is the tendency or the, the process by which the expression or lack of expression of one gene impacts the expression or lack of expression of another gene, right? And because genes are, you know, what we've learned is that genes are actually networked together in their influences, as one might expect of, of, of complex systems where uh, you know, you create a protein and it doesn't just have one effect, right? It doesn't just do one thing. It can, you know, be part of many processes and therefore have many causal interactions and, and be, be sort of included in a much wider space of, of possible um, causal implications. And so the interesting thing about that epistasis is, you know, people have wondered, well, what are there patterns with respect to this? Or is there structure with respect to this question of, of how many how many genes can a gene interact with before you know is there any limit to how effective that is like if, if every gene is affecting every other gene can you have evolution um, and you know this 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 uh, theoretical biologist and intellectual by the name of Stuart Kaufman I'm not sure if you've come across any of his work I, I mentioned him a number of times and he's a very interesting and you know rigorous scientist who did a very a lot of pioneering work in theoretical biology. Um, and one of the parts of uh, one piece or one facet of some of the theoretical work that he did and published in his first large book, um, The Origins of Order, uh, was this work on something called NK adaptive landscapes, where N was the number of nodes in the network and K was the number of, of sort of causal or epistatic interactions between those different nodes. And he was basically modeling this and he, he, he began to realize that, you know, and there's some debate about what parameters are required for this to actually exist in a network. But I think that the phenomenon is robust enough to overall description and, and those who are interested can look more deeply into caveats uh, outside of this context. But really like, what happens is you turn up that K. So if you have no interactions at all, um, the, the evolutionary landscape, it, you know, evolution can occur, but it's not that efficient. You, you actually start connecting these and basically information and the, the adaptive information that is encoded by the way that these genes relate to one another can actually get a pretty good foothold. And so you get this peak of how effective the evolutionary process can be right around three interactions per gene or so. 
Um, and then if you go beyond that, you actually get this crash uh, of the evolutionary or the adaptive efficacy of the genetic sequence to actually hold information about um, the environment that's useful, right? Because what is a gene, like what is the fitness of a gene if not for the ability of that to confer some sort of function that's actually useful in the environment that the organism exists in, right? So what, what's the sort of overall takeaway of this? Well, the overall takeaway of this is like the way that he says to think about this, this NK adaptive landscape formula is that when you start turning that K dial up and you start connecting everything together, what you're actually kind of doing to the underlying adaptive is decorrelating every position from any, every other position in terms of the information you can get from exploring in any given direction. So it'd be like standing in one place and like directly in front of you, there's a hundred foot cliff, directly behind you, there's a hundred foot drop. And then to your right, there's some sort of like non-Euclidean thing that doesn't make any sense, right? So it's like, you're not even on a, a landscape where you can sort of walk up a hill in any reasonable way, right? There's, there's not much you can do when you move around. Um, and so he calls all of this a complexity catastrophe. This idea of turning up this connectivity in the network so high that nobody can get an adaptive foothold and nobody can walk to the top of a, of a, of a mountain, um, you know, the fitness landscape, basically uh, precludes the very processes of evolution or by, ad by, by, by ad adaptive natural selection uh, itself. Like you can't actually get evolution beyond a certain very inefficient threshold out of this network. Um, and, and that's very deeply related, I would say, to the, the question of uh, how we actually relate to one another um, given these enabling technologies that have, you know, that have allowed us to expose ourselves to an infinitude of perceptions, an infinitude of perspectives, um, you know, not a literal infinitude, but from the perspective of one person with limited time and energy, it might as well be infinite. Um, and the fact that, that certain spaces, especially like Twitter, these spaces are, are almost unbounded. Uh, you can't really say, like, unless you want to lock your account, um, you can't necessarily say that a certain, only a certain group of people can actually see what I'm saying or interact with me. And Twitter over the past year and a half has added, begun to add some user-based controls in this uh, domain, but none of these controls really address the underlying structural issues of the network because those structural issues of the network are the same issues, like that same chaos that's precluding adaptive information or precluding adaptation from occurring, that same friction and chaos, they depend on as a, you could think of it very literally as a emotional reactor. And the energy of that emotional reactor is what is used to generate revenues, right? Like in the same way that like, you have a, a control rod in a nuclear reactor and you want a little bit more energy, you can pull out the control rod the reaction basically creates more heat and that can, heat can be turned into work and that can be turned into useful saleable power. Uh, a very same thing, you know, the very same thing can be said of the way that entities like Facebook and Twitter manage the economic interface between their informational and emotional reactors that we are all inside of generating the heat and the friction and the way that they monetize this by transforming our attention into usable economic work, meaning 
they can sell our attention to people who wish to, you know, connect us to products, um, right? And so, so basically, <laughs> we see that you know we're in this double-edged sword type of environment where you know actually reducing the number of average connections in a network so that we could have more high-quality interaction that is directed elsewhere outside of the the, the memetic reactor itself. That's not at all in the interests of the centralized institution whose entire purpose, its entire reason d'etre, its reason for being is to centralize everyone in the reactor core such that it can be efficiently uh, extracted of its economic value. And so, you know, this, this is this interesting pivot to this question of, of value perhaps, let's say, because you can use this term economic value as this extractable resource from this mass of people but why can we actually, why the hell do we use this for value? If you really explain it that way, how many people would say that that's actually value, like really deeply valuable? Um, and I think that one of the interesting, you know, that's this, that's this tie to a lot of the research that I've done around, you know, the history of how we represent the world around us and in our interactions with one another and our exchanges with one another and what we, what we consider valuable and how the increasing fungibility, the absolute fungibility that we've come to essentially at the end of the road here of the, of the monetary units has actually removed a certain amount of information from this space of analysis, this space of evaluating, well, do we actually think that what the money is saying is valuable is an accurate reflection or gives us sufficient information to make statements about whether the processes we're creating are, are truly valuable, right? And there's obviously some sort of disconnects going on if we're creating very large companies whose, whose primary economic relationship to humanity is one of, of, of parasitism, right? Is, is essentially, if its economic model fundamentally requires it to continuously put people in relation to one another such that they are bringing out the worst and least adaptive parts and least resilient parts and most violent parts of our evolution of our shared evolutionary history um, and doing that for profit. And so it's like how we represent value, I would say, um, you know, whenever I analyze any one of these higher order symptomatic problems in the economy, I almost always end up back at this question of, of representation of the tools we use to represent the world and how we keep those tools adequately tethered or connected to um, actual embodied reality, physical interactions, um, actualized, uh, actualized cashing out of uh, economic activity in the lives of other people, um, the, the purpose uh, or telos of these, this activity, is the, is the economic activity just an activity that's designed for maximizing the height of your stack of dollars? Or is there actually some useful byproduct to it, right? Um, and how do we even discern that? Because you know, many people will say, yes, of course what I do produces value. Look at the product I sell. Um, and they wouldn't necessarily say that you know, I'm primarily concerned with getting as, mo as much money as, as quickly as possible. But then you know, all we have to do, like, no individual is going to admit that, but you, know, you can look at certain parts of the economy, especially parts that are, are very heavily parasitized, very heavily uh, scam oriented, let's say, um, 
And you'll see that there's plenty of people willing to pursue economic extraction, uh, not just with no value added, but with actually a lot of harm done, right? There's plenty of people literally out there trying to scam other human beings uh, into giving up these fungible symbols of value uh, such that you know there's this net, not even net zero, but net negative transfer of value because not only is one person, not only is the value symbol exchanged, but one person is then also left probably trusting humanity less, um, probably not being able to, um, you know, uh, actualize a certain number of, 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 of events in the future that they had planned on, perhaps you know, sending a kid to college or even just buying dinner, right? <laughs> Once you get scammed by somebody who's not concerned for the creation of value, but is only concerned with, you know, getting as many of these value symbols as possible, you know, not only is that person not adding value, they're dramatically destroying like they're 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 we spent a very long time as a species building up this fabric of trust and the ability to actually uh extend trust to other human beings such that we could collectively know that on average most people were pointing towards the creation of collective value and benefit in our in our area like the majority of people you would come across in a day weren't out to fuck you, right? Um, now, we could debate that as well, right? <laughs> it depends on your perspective on, on different cultures and, and like what we actually mean by, by trying to fuck one another. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other question. But yeah, I've, I've gone down a bunch of different paths yeah, yeah, right yeah. there so let me know if you want to dig into sure. any of those specifically yeah well for sure the question of how we're all fucking each other these days is a very important one i'm i'm with you on that yeah metaphorically okay. and literally <laughs> totally totally um all right let me um uh, let me do a little bit of processing here okay well maybe i'll share some of my personal endeavors, engagements with others at the moment in relation to some of these topics, uh, in relation to value in its tokenized form and its uh, detachment from a rootedness in at least a set of values, if we want to speak about it like that, which enables the ongoing participation in creation itself rather than um, merely extraction in this way that appears increasingly uh, fragile and zero-sum and all the rest of it with, well, with such consequences. Trust is a big part of it, definitely. Uh, let me see if I can return this to a personal place. So some of the things I've been thinking about recently and a philosopher named Chris Mastro Pietro I was talking with him the other day and uh, he was definitely influential on me in in seeing this way. It was certainly seeing this way, but the the particular expression was is relevant to mention the weight of potential associated with extraordinary wealth. So not only is there this extractive dynamic which is eroding trust we're also in a situation where progressively 
And here actually as well, I, I know you have an interest in cryptocurrency and blockchain technology and, and all of that is of course relevant to questions of trust, at least considered from certain angles of inquiry in coordination space, let's say. Let's say that the possibility space opened up by blockchain and the associated cultural energy around it is, and I agree with you because I've heard you say this elsewhere, that there's a very large wealth transfer opportunity, possibility, occurrence taking place as a result of this technology. Is that a fair, very basic characterization? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> that was a basic characterization. I mean, okay. I, like the, yeah, like I, I would kind of say there's, there's, there are many intimate processes that processual relations between our representations and our actual behaviors. And we are presently beginning to shift from one set of representational technologies to another. And to the extent that people's energies are, are tied up with or, or primarily oriented, um, to one of those novel representative technologies, you know, that represents a shift in value into that world. That represents a shift of behavioral potential into that world that's coordinated by that new set of representational structures and whatever behavioral attractors are associated with those new structures. Um, that's kind of how I think about that in, a very, in the most abstract way. Right. <laughs> because we are talking, we are talking about sort of this meta transition from one set of uh, representational technologies that we use implicitly to express and compute human interactions, values, um, various necessities for living. Uh, you know, every piece of information about humanity gets compressed and compressed and compressed, over compressed into some sort of representational technology that we use as an operating system to keep the lights on as a placeholder. <laughs> Yeah. And, and that whole representational schema is evolving. And we've come to a position in time where that evolution is seemingly taking a, a discontinuous jump or, or, or taking a sort of step function or trying to take a step function uh, jump. And, and much of what I have done so far has been try to understand and analyze that through the lens of uh, adaptation evolution and associated sort of biological metaphors. And, you know, I would actually argue not necessarily metaphors so much as just patterns that recur within emergent systems that exhibit order within the context of generally uh, entropic gradients. Yeah, understood. So however one comes to a position of particular agency associated with the wealth tokenized wealth they possess the process of becoming deeply acquainted with what matters it matters and so i sort of began this by sort of articulating you know wanting to share with you a little bit of what i'm contemplating with others and in my own thinking is the kind of interpersonal contexts where the immensity of the potential someone has to wield can actually be presenced in a in a felt 
and in like a in a more integrated psychic context i don't know if this is interesting to you or how interesting this is exactly i'm trying to remember how much involving oneself in the appreciation for life and potential and what is as it is reflected in other as it's reflected in the world as it's conduited as it's touched in in the self how important that is in in all of this in all of this context and so when i consider things like value and exchange i think of the necessity for a cultivating culture a healthy culture to involve beings in a process of a real deep appreciation for life as it is i'm not i don't know if about before we come to maybe it, it doesn't make as much sense to say before we come to abstractions of it because obviously abstractions are very important but nevertheless that's part of where my my interest has been in terms of how i'm responding to these questions in an in a in a real committed way in my life and in this project in in the in the network i host and in the collaborations i invite yeah I, life life as it is is a frame of reference that to some extent attempts to step outside of any individuated perspective through this process of living uh, into a, a frame of absolute statement concerning you know the abstraction of, of, of all of it and this is this returns us to the exact same tension between experience internal experience and the desire to communicate about that internal experience to others in our environment and and the necessity because we can't be identical with one another like we can't share the same experience even if we were identical twins because we're moving through different paths in our lives right even if we held hands through our entire life <laughs> even if we were you know conjoined right those are quite close they're still not identical right paths through reality and so we're always no matter what left with this question of how to bridge the loneliness of that the loneliness of that isolation in our selves and in that experience that we have and then that is entirely unique to us um and so we're constantly in this position as a social species of needing to find ways of communicating um, what we're experiencing uh, how we feel about what we're experiencing uh, what we've experienced in the past what we wish to experience in the future how others fit into those different categories of past present and future what the desired relationships uh, look like as those systems move forward in time uh, what is necessary to actually sustain the the the, the base level um, sustenance of those patterns of connection and relationships that we care most about and wish to see move into the into the future, and how to coordinate all of this when we are not the same 
person, right? And we therefore fall back, you know, we first fell back onto this technology or discovered this technology of language or what we call language, right? Um, perturbing the air at each other in regular and predictable ways as a map for the world around us at first, the direct map, and then the ability to abstract that map into hypothetical imagery about things that were not actually present uh, could be entire contexts, stories about the previous year's harvest or, or hunt, uh, stories about you know the desire for a, a future home of a different kind, right? The ability to paint realities that either existed but don't exist now, or could in theory exist if one's understanding of the path from the present to that realized future is of sufficient fidelity to bring that about. And so I think so much of what we're doing with all of these representational systems is constantly mediating the personal autonomy of our own experiences and our own desires and our own you know, visions of the future uh, with those of everyone around us. And there's always a kind of compression that's going to be required. There's always a loss that's inevitable, regardless of whether we're using words or money. Um, and I think words and money are actually, you know, they're very similar technologies. I think, you know, money takes linguistic expression to a, uh, to a kind of, it lends qualities of portability and fungibility that aren't necessarily there in language itself, right? Uh, where you can basically say that, you know, and scarcity actually, right? Like this idea that there is this finite, scarce and portable representation of reality that we can basically use to coordinate action um, outside of our own brains. And, and realize visions of shared past, present, and future as some sort of uh, network together. And so, you know, that's what we're trying to figure out right now, I think. I think we kind of woke up, uh, we were unconscious of so much of, of humanity's path of realization of these tools and technologies. We just, we just, did this because it functioned. Someone had a good idea to write markings on a clay tablet and say, this represents one bundle of, of, of hay and this represents two bundles of hay and then multiply that by a thousand and use that as a, as a record keeping technology for an entire empire. And you know, it wasn't necessarily thought of in terms of evolution, obviously, or in terms of information theory, obviously. It wasn't explicit, it was just functional because it enabled a certain level of complex organization that wasn't previously enabled. Um, and we find ourselves now at this, at this place in history where we actually do understand quite a bit of the mechanics underlying what's happened throughout our history in terms of the, the way that we've represented information and the limitations of those representations and we're now trying to look back at this and say, well, how do we avoid those failure modes? You know, things like centralized capture, right? Things like the ability to inflate currency, which is essentially disconnecting a representation from its underlying reality. Uh, also, while balancing that against 
this tendency to write a lot of human value and experience out of those shared forms of representations that we use collectively, right? Like the fact that you don't like that, that, that you don't know if someone has, or the $20 bill that they're paying for dinner with, you know, was gained through teaching a child how to read or selling that same child you know, some drugs, right? <laughs> you don't know. Uh, but as it turns out, the capacity to coordinate complex social behavior uh, in increasingly complex environments depends at least to some extent on not losing information associated with all of those transactions, um, those exchanges, right, to, to, for the collective organism to hold on to some of that information. But then you end up in these questions of, well, okay, if that centralized organism or if that organism becomes a sort of centralized tyranny and it has control over all of the centralized mechanisms of, of, of information, um, it can very much uh, become corrupt and do a great deal of damage to all of those inside of its um, inside of its borders, let's say, right? Like right. China, talking about you know, the Chinese system of social credit would be an interesting path along, along that line of exploration versus these more emergent systems of of, of, of possible crypto representations where people can create or have a, have a, a voice in authoring the level of representative fidelity that they wish to uh, to have uh, over time. But yeah, no, I, I hear that. I, I like that you use the word authorship. I think that's key. Uh, what was in my mind was for sure authenticity. So where I'm going to go with this, I think, is to ask you about non-fungibility and fungibility with respect to money so we could talk a little bit a little bit about nfts i don't want to lose this part of authorship but i want i want to begin by going back to what you mentioned about the connection between language and money and um, one of the things that flagged up to me where i was like huh key difference there um being that you know, uh, there's a certain fungibility, portability to language. You know, I can define a word and uh, you can use it and you can go use it in a bunch of different contexts and we can say it's going to roughly function the same way. Um, but there's also the case that, I mean, if we think a little bit more, uh, a little bit more poetically or, or, or sort of mystically, you know, the apprentice and the master can say the same set of words, but it's not necessarily going to cast the same spell. Right. There's a sense in which the how we say something and whether or not we're coming from a place of authorship, whether or not that authorship is in tune with a sort of discernment and an embodied relationship to the context that might not be um, apprehensible to those who might be observing. Maybe it's not totally understood by the apprentice yet. And so they think all I need to do is mimic in that way and do that thing. Totally fungible. It's going to have the same effect. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it has something that gets entirely out of hand because actually they were missing something about what was coupled together with that, you know, linguistic expression, which gave a certain, um, which was critical to the essence of that communication in this case being adaptive in a, in a certain sense. And so I think about the, the criticality in some sense of poetic expression when it comes to, I say, ensuring, funny to use the word ensure here, I'm just going to say it, the criticality of poetic expression to ensure that the language we come to use doesn't tyrannize us in a certain sense, that my only way to come to know who I am or know who you are has to be using a certain set of words in a certain set in a certain order, 
and am I cut off from my sense of authorship and being involved in that process of, you know, choosing fundamentally what potential to actualize and and with a sense that that that, that process of authorship is is um is connected at so many levels, up and down the stack of um, cognitive process and embodiment, and and the deep you know um, unconscious processes and all of that. So um, that seems to me, I mean, I, that felt to me important to um, preface in the, uh, you know, to then um, open up into maybe a conversation about um, how you see it, because I'm just curious in general anyway, how you, how you see the phenomenon of NFTs, uh, not necessarily only in the, let's say, the... Um, the parasitic mode that they are often uh, in the public consciousness um, as, but in terms of the function you see that kind of technology may enable in in the landscape of possibility, and it seems so important to think through this well with respect to the design of systems to come, the design of social systems, and certainly participation in the digital in general so i'll leave the door open there wondering how that's landing for you yeah perhaps i would start by saying that you know nft non-fungible token that is that is the substance that is the thing that people are talking about it's it's we often start talking about things because you can more easily point to them and it's much more difficult to understand the process that has precipitated the thing or the process in which the thing is embedded, but that is actually just as important, if not perhaps more important than the thing itself. Sort of figure and ground distinctions, right? Are we looking at the, the vase or are we looking at the two faces on the side of the vase? Um, <clears throat> and I would say that, you know, that, that, that ground to the figure of NFTs, the processual ground to the figure of NFTs, I would call it something like DDRM, right? Like distributed digital rights management processes, right? Like what we're really talking about when we're talking about the creation of these NFTs and, and their fungibility and the fungibility relating back to the, the, the question of, of language and money as well, right? Because kind of, you know, one of the things that we were doing when we were creating actual physical coins or physical sculptures or physical shells or physical knots in rope, all of which have been used to perform accounting tasks in different cultures at different periods of time, uh, you know, what we're trying to do is create a um, difficult to uh, mimic way of representing reality that has continuity and stability across time, regardless of who's holding that. Um, language is difficult in that way because of the fact that lost in translation is a phrase for a reason, right? Um, part of what we are bringing to the table is the word we intend, but and the, the receptors, the sort of semantic receptors in another mind uh, are never exactly the same as the ones that you have. I mean, this is the source of so much frustration and argument, especially online, because it's, it's you know, very, it's very seldom that it's easy for you to know what I mean without us sharing deep context. Um, 
and so moving from language into the space of externalized physical representation was one way of reducing the ambiguity associated with language. So we had these physical models of reality. Um, and literally these began with sculptures that were actually you know, recognizable, right? And we didn't have fungible tokens of, of monetary value with the king's face stamped on them. You had accounting systems that were literally using little pieces of clay shaped like corn or wheat or uh, an ox, right? Um, and using that like a board game to actually play like accounting board games with, with you know, this virtual representation of the realm. Um, now, <laughs> the issue with that is that there's this ability to game those systems. If you realize that the king is using this system to make very important decisions and you might be able to stand to benefit if you have access to manipulating those representations, well, you might begin to represent or manipulate those representations. Um, that's what we call temptation, right? And it's very difficult to avoid temptation forever. Um, so, so there's this really interesting question about, you know, why, like, like how, what are the next steps? What are the next steps of this look like? How, especially when you start bringing like pure information back into this, this, this equation, right? Because you know, so many of these questions were really opened up once again when it became extremely cheap to take some sort of valuable information, package that digitally, and then leverage the almost infinitely cheap process of copying that information and distributing that information to spread it across the world. Um, and, and the interesting thing about that is it's it's extremely useful when you're using like that, that, that you can you can make very positive, you can make positive arguments for information wants to be free um, from one perspective of utility, uh, from the perspective that if there's information that is, that is useful in proportion to, you know, that has positive network effects, that's useful in proportion to the number of people that know it, right? But earlier on, we were also talking about other kind of information that is, uh, damaging in proportion to the number of people who know it probably, especially if those people aren't very morally calibrated and wise. Um, and then there's also information related to uh, useful asymmetries that we use to do work, right? Like the fact that if you have an ID badge, for example, the company relies on a set of ID badges to know who should be inside or not, right? Well, if the ID badge is entirely fungible and anyone can fake one, then it becomes much more difficult for any sort of group of people who are trying to consensually work together based on some set of criterion to do so without interference from others, right? And so it's like, there's always this tension because there's always incentives to try to get some sort of gain from those collaborative processes without paying the costs associated with those collaborative processes, which is known as the free rider problem in game theory and economics. Um, and so, you know, now we have this world of NFTs popping up in the art world. It's like, I'm not, like I've said, <laughs> I've been critical of them, but not necessarily dismissive of the entire phenomenon. I've been critical of a certain kind of realization. That being said, I was also, you know, back in 2018, uh, me and a friend of mine helped create 
you know, an art exhibit at a local crypto place called Starfish Mission. And we also had talks on the usage of NFTs in the art world in, in 2018. So it's like the phenomenon interests me in its ability to perform useful work, right? Through the maintenance of certain information asymmetries based on um, provable scarcity or, or the provable non-fungibility of a specific representation associated with a process, a piece of code, an image, something valuable, right? Um, but you know what I've said largely recently is that many of the like the inflated economic value associated with the NFT craze is much more a, a sort of social phenomenon that is analogous to the ICO craze where many people are recognizing there's something of interest here and it's very visually attractive. A lot of people are piling into this space. Some people are doing very high quality art, but there's so much demand outstripping the high quality supply that there's this massive gap that people can fill by providing pretty low quality supply that will still get uh, amped up in price far above its, its likely long-term value, right? So like, I see utility for a number of, of, of functional processes in the technology of DDRM, right? NFTs. But that also uh, doesn't preclude me from noticing when uh, a bunch of people are running scams or scammy processes because I'm sensitive to that as someone who's who, who tends to be on the side of like, you're going to fuck up this useful, you're gonna make it much harder for people to perform useful work with these technologies because you're going to smear that technology with the associated image of parasitism, right? right. And humans are very, very sensitive to parasitism, right? If people think it's a scam and, and it becomes associated with that idea, you know, ICE, the idea of ICOs and distributed crowdfunding through those through crypto mechanisms has still not recovered. And that's an extremely necessary technology. The ability to flow capital from the bottom up as opposed to top down, albeit with higher levels of accountability that we had in 2017, because that was that was the issue there. Um, but that's a necessary, that's a necessary um, process in the 21st century distributed economy uh, that is much harder to achieve now because it didn't defend itself well enough from those who only wanted to grift um, that space of innovation. And I see a lot of that happening in the NFT domain as well. Um, so I'm happy to talk about any part of that because you yeah. know, I, I'm much more interested in the usage of NFTs as tokens that can be used in voting systems, in computer algorithms, in you know uh, the allowance of access to certain kinds of information or experiences. Um, you know, used as a DR, distributed DRM render layer in virtual worlds, like all of this kind of stuff is, is more interesting to me than, than much of how it has initially shown up uh, on the map. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, um, it's, it's shown up in popular consciousness as something which in large part, the hype is driven on number go up and in that sense is uh, in no way reflective of an embodied 
projection of value held from a deep place into the world, um, but is just a way to interact and try to come out ahead in the game of already existing values, you know, value exchange systems. Yeah. And so you're pointing in the direction of ways in which you could see the power of this technology actually being used wisely. And I totally well, kind of it kind of relates back to our initial conversation when we mentioned this idea of like, is someone focusing on creating value in a in a meaningful way uh, in relation to other people or processes in the real world, or is what they're doing purely instrumentally directed toward extracting the maximum number of symbols so like are you making your nft because you're an artist who's who's making amazing art that's trying to say something in the world that you care about or is your entire purpose for making the art trying to see how many of these pieces you can churn out to get to capture as much value as quickly as possible uh, from this trend right <laughs> those are two very different worlds because like i want a funding mechanism to exist to support uh, increasingly the production of high quality representational art in the world. That's absolutely necessary for humanity. It's such a powerful, and I would argue for the last 50 to hundred years, lacking aspect at the center of our culture is this is a, a healthy or vibrant mode for funding good art uh, and experimental art. Um, so I'm really happy that, that that exists. I just think once again, you know, just like ICO, uh, in 2017, you need better ways of understanding who's interested in providing long-term value and who's interested in getting as much money as they possibly can and then absconding, you know, to an island somewhere and, and just like saying fuck off to the rest of the people who gave them that money. Totally. Yeah. So, so there's, there's a number of paths to take here. I'm kind of noticing my own energy for expressing too much dwindle a little bit. And so maybe if we move toward closing this, let me see if I can feel into something I would love to ask you. Hope. Phrasing questions is so bloody hard. In what are you hopeful? Hmm. So, I generally maintain hope in dependencies of life itself. I think that we are of life. And I think that despite the ease with which we can grow cynical about the nature of our response to threat, insofar as that typically takes the form of wait until the absolute last minute when everything's on fire and then try to do something about it. You have to be forgiving to any living system uh, that's trying to manage as many different levels of complexity and variables in need uh, as, as we are. And as, as any life form, I think, uh, must, right? Like, like living is not easy. There are uh, innumerable trade-offs 
And, and those are always present at every moment and action in the world requires us to uh, constantly figure out those tensions to the best of our ability. And I think that it doesn't take that many people performing that process at a high level of fidelity to really begin moving the needle in ways that are highly adaptive. That's one of the upsides and one of the, the hopeful, beautiful aspects of connecting humanity together in the way that we have is that if we can demonstrate responsibility and wisdom, the capacity to, to, to amplify that capacity of those who are capable and wise has never been as high as it is today. I'm hopeful that that's emerging. I'm hopeful that people are finding one another and having these deeper, more authentic, more exploratory conversations. And that it does seem like actual initiatives in reality are emerging from that, whether those are people changing their, you know, even small processes in their lives for the better, in their families, uh, taking different approaches to education, I think is a very large component of this, taking more personal responsibility for educating ourselves and our loved ones and our, and our families and our children, and not just outsourcing that as a function of some abstract bureaucracy. Um, being able to, uh, not, not, not just education, but beyond that, being able to actually um, co-create new spaces, new kinds of spaces, using, you know, even if we're using still current models of ownership, um, groups of people moving closer to one another, experimenting with various forms of shared values. Um, you know, obviously this has happened throughout history. Uh, most recently we had back to the land movement in the sort of late sixties and seventies. And that, you know, I think I'm, I'm hopeful that we have more wisdom this time around. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm sure about that, but I do think that we have a, a lot better grounding. There's a lot more pragmatism I see with I think with these novel modes of relation um, than, than I saw, or then <laughs> I wasn't around then, but what I have seen of those initial movements, um, there is a lot more ungrounded idealism because I think that there wasn't as much accountability either. People couldn't really see what was going on, and therefore a lot of those sort of shadow impulses tended to overcome those communities across time. You know, the story of almost all of those intentional communities from the 70s ends with some cult leader essentially turning it into something very perverted, right, for their personal interests. Um, not all of them, not all of them, but many, unfortunately. And so there's this question of like, you know, responsible experimentation. I'm hopeful for that. Uh, I'm hopeful that we are going to be able to begin responsibly and, and um, competently using our understanding of the human mind and human psychology and human sociology in combination with our technological capacities to begin bringing out uh, the better angels of our nature, let's say, in online conversation, uh, finding ways to reflect our values back to us and map them onto actions in our lives, using technology for that as opposed to 
parasitic extraction and trying to constantly suck us into these virtualizations uh, as opposed to push us into real interaction with one another and with the world around us. Yeah, those are a few things I'm hopeful for. Beautiful, beautifully said. So much coming through there and um, so much I resonate with and, and want to build on and, and feel I have some things to add. Maybe in a later conversation, I can share a little bit about what I've been working on with this project and with others. In yeah, that, I like that. Yeah, in, in that space of um, enabling generative interaction between people in, um, in seeking to think through how we can enable artistic experience to use the word reflect, uh, to reflect back to us the values we hold already that we have been in some sense so deeply imbued with and yet can get so mangled as we grow up or our relationship to them can be so traumatized in various ways. And so there's this there's always this um, profound relationship between inner work in relationship to artistic expression and then the participating in uh, exchange, which enables us to see more in the other and in who we are. So much there. There was one other thing. Ah, oh, yeah. There was something which came to me yesterday in a conversation and I just wanted to share it because it um, was another point of uh, mutual resonation with hope. And someone asked me yesterday about my hope for the future of humanity, I suppose, in it voiced in different language, but it was something to that effect. And um, the only thing I'll communicate from that response now is just that I think both our evolutionary moment as well as our technology have enabled has enabled the potential to gather from the four corners of the earth a um, a wider representation of the psyche of of what the psyche can um, appreciate and perceive and express as as beautiful and of course there's always the other side of that you know um we're also uh, at the precipice where the inherent um, tendency toward violence and competition in various ways that can become totally dysregulated from something that looks a bit more adaptive. That's all there as well. But it does seem like we can right now and are in processes of developing the capacity to communicate cohere with each other and coordinate in a way that allows a, a fuller representation of who we are to be present in in a generative collaboration about what to do let's say so cool man thank you we we, we uh require more perspectival weavers weaving baskets of perception in which we can carry ourselves forward through time. Yeah, we do. Something and we also need like something that. 
something like that and with something reliable to hang them on that's a nice way of putting that can we can we coordinate structures in which weaving can well i suppose baskets is is one thing i'm sure we can weave lots of things all sorts of functional tools have been woven throughout history Totally. Yeah, I mean, but I, I do think, you know, that metaphor is, is quite useful in the sense that, you know, there's, uh, I, I often, I often think about, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that we, we come into spaces with one another and the space and the implied purpose of the space in which we exist with another person has so much to do with what, you know, how those subsequent interactions will unfold. You know, is the purpose, like, are we stepping into a combat ring? Are we stepping into the ring? Are we stepping into the boxing ring to, to fight one another? Or are we stepping into uh, a living room of someone we care about to help explore or to, you know, co-explore some, some problem they're having, right? Like, what is the frame of mind there? And it's, it's interesting because the frame of, you know, I think so much of online communication tends to skew toward this idea of, you know, whatever facets of ourself are facing this other person, the point of that is, is you know, essential combat, uh, convergent elimination to a single perspective, right? As opposed to a slightly more open and exploratory view where actually what we're trying to do, you know, we're coming to the table with, with threads that we have of, of perception and, and, and meaning and purpose and intent and, and is it possible to weave conversationally amongst one another such that the thing that we produce together is not only functional, but hopefully also beautiful, you yeah. know? And I, and I do think that that, you know, the highest form of aspirational interpersonal communication really does produce that kind of a social fabric. And it is that social fabric that enables the actual production and creation in a sustainable and, and functional manner of all the other sort of precipitates of society that, that we create around us. And, and I think that those also reflect the quality of our understanding of the processes in which we're a part. And if we don't see ourselves as part of this emergent process of continuity that you know, if we wish for ourselves to continue, must also continue. We are going to continually produce uh, artifacts of our civilization that don't facilitate our continued existence. And, and um, you do that for long enough and you cease to exist. So, you know, I, I think that a lot of it really does begin with figuring out more foundational and, 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 and nourishing and integrative and productive ways of weaving together our perspectives conversationally, despite the fact that uh, it's so easy to look and see all of this polarized heat being generated. It's good to know that there are a lot of people out there uh, trying to trying to weave the net that will catch that system when it falls. Totally. Well, well said, well said. And I'll just leave, what is it? A cookie here? I leave a cookie or what do they call it in... It's some breadcrumbs anyway, just an invitation to anyone listening to this to, if you resonate with, um, with what you just said there, with what Matthew's just said, then, um, yeah, look a little closer if you're not familiar with this project and, um, 
there's uh, the threads that we've explored here. If you follow them and bring yourself to them, you will find others who are willing to engage with you well in this in this uh, mutual crafting process. So, with that said, I'd like to end here and thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. And thank you very much to all the patrons for your continued support. It means a great deal. For those of you wishing to support the channel and the project more broadly, you can go to patreon.com slash voicecraft.